We are picking up in this uh, series in Acts chapter 2, the ancient future practices of the church. We're looking in verses 42 to 47 of chapter 2, particularly verses 42. That's where we're spending all of our time. And, you know, we started that last week, and we talked about basically what we're doing with this series is we're standing up on a hill and looking back to the beginning and seeing how straight the path is that comes from the origin of the church to where we're at now. And are we still living in connection with the original blueprint that God had for his church? Are we still living out the design? Are we living according to the way that God has called us to live? And, and this, is, this verse that we're looking at, Acts 2.42, is the first verse that's ever written about the New Testament expression of the church. It's the first verse that God ever writes about the church. And so we're looking at that and saying, are we matching up with that? How far have we strayed from the path? You know, that's the point. And the first word that we touched on was the first word that really jumps out from that passage. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And the first one is, is that second word there, they devoted themselves. And last week we talked all about what it meant to devote yourselves. That's different than having an interest in something. That's different than having a desire for something. That's even different than being disciplined disciplined about something. Being devoted is being like, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. I'm all in. And so they devoted themselves to God and they devoted themselves to these practices in pursuit of God. And so that's what we talked about last week. Now we're moving into actually looking or diving into the series to say, what is it that they actually devoted themselves to in the pursuit of God? And there's those four things there, the, uh, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And today we're focusing on the apostles' teaching, okay, which is basically, if you look at who the apostles were, they were people like Matthew and James and Paul. And if you, if you follow those names, Peter, you realize that that's the books of the New Testament. You know, these are the guys who wrote the New Testament. And back then they were in the flesh teaching these people. But now we have the things that they were teaching in writing. And it's awesome that we have them in writing now instead of just in person because now we can mull it over and over and over and study it and pick it apart and learn from it. And so this is, for us to do the equivalent of that, it means that we're devoted to not just the apostles' teaching, but to the, but to the apostles' teaching as revealed in here. We're devoted to the Word of God. And um, when we go through these four things uh, in the next four weeks, I want you to take notice, if you didn't already, when you come in the door here, as you're coming in the, the hallway, there's uh, some new uh, artwork that's on the wall over there, and that's from our friends at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Lebanon. Uh, we're connected to them through the network we're a part of, Netzer. We're also connected to them through the denomination, Church of the Brethren, and so they're, they're a sister church of ours, and they have a whole art community out there, and when we have series that we're going through where it can be depicted well with art, I call them up and ask if they can help us out, and so they created all of those for us, and they're really cool. So if you get a chance, look at them, and there's some meaning to it that's deeper than just the first, you know, glance, and uh, I'm thinking about having them come in and, and tell us more about it at some point, but anyway, uh, take a look at that, okay, and today we're going to be focusing in on the apostles teaching on devoting ourselves to the word of God, so I want us to read this passage together so that we can honor God's word, I'm going to have you stand in honor of that word, and we read Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread 
in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his richest blessings through the reading of his word. You can have a seat and join me in prayer. God, we just are inviting you right now. We recognize that when it comes to us receiving from your word, we desperately need you to be the communicator. And I'm up here and you've given me a gift to be up here communicating. But when it comes to taking this word and translating it into our lives and into our church, God, I just ask that you would be the communicator and that today, God, our hearts would be soft and you would allow our hearts to receive the word of God as a seed into soft soil and that your spirit would be the water who just, uh, you know, waters that word in our heart and allows it to bear fruit. God, we desperately need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. So be here with us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had one of these situations where you actually really, you really need to hear something. Uh, from someone because your head's kind of messed up a little bit and you need something. It might be that, you know, you're uh, interested in making a big purchase and you're kind of torn between something and you need someone to say, no, this is the right one, you know? Oh, okay. And it can't just be from anybody. It has to be from someone who knows what they're talking about. Maybe you have anxiety over a health situation and you need someone to tell you like, this is what's going on and you're going to be okay. But it can't just be anyone. Again, it has to actually be like a doctor who knows what they're talking about. Maybe you needed to be, you know, warned about something in your life that's not really okay, but obviously not just anyone can come up to you and like, you know, hit you in the face with that thing. You need someone who you can really trust, who you know they have your best interests in mind. Sometimes it's an authority figure. Sometimes you need to just let go of something and you need someone to tell you it's time to let this go you know I, I had a situation I've had many many situations in my life um, where the, the right words have been spoken by the right person at the right time and they're just incredibly important you know and there's never enough of them you know I'm always looking for more people to speak into my life who who I can trust on this topic whatever that topic is I've had a few of those um, recently uh, one of them in particular was just a, a couple weeks ago I was at a meeting with a guy who's not part of this church, but he's connected to a ministry that I interact with. And uh, we were at a meeting together, and I was supposed to share, uh, you know, some history of uh, some ministry that I was involved in. So I was sharing with the group a little bit about uh, some background of some things that I had done and things I had led. And there's this one situation that had kind of been heavy on my heart for years. And it was about this team that I was asked to lead. And I, I led this team, and we had a job to accomplish. And we worked at doing what it is that we were supposed to do, and we worked hard and tirelessly and gave a lot of, we weren't being paid for this, this was extra. And so we were just doing a lot of stuff going after this, trying to really help out this ministry. And uh, at the end of it, we really hoped to see something accomplished, you know? And we got to the end and we worked very hard at providing a way forward. And yet the, the group of people who we were providing this for were really resistant and didn't actually take it. And it, it, instead, it just kind of like whatever. And it didn't actually go to where it, you know, the fulfillment of that thing should have gone, as it were. And I was pretty frustrated by that. And the team was pretty frustrated by that. And I wasn't frustrated with God, like, why didn't you make this happen? I wasn't disappointed in the team. The team did great. I wasn't necessarily disappointed in myself. Like, we had worked really hard to do it. And I didn't have bitterness or resentment, but I had a, a sense of, like, this didn't get to where it was supposed to be, and I was pretty frustrated about that. And it had always been a question in my mind, like, what was that all about? Was that just a waste of time or what? Like, at the end, it didn't actually come to fruition. I was pretty frustrated about it. As I was telling this story, the guy came up to me later, and he said, listen, Tim, he's like, I don't know what it is. I, while you're saying this, 
I sense something. Like, I don't know if it's despair or if it's regret or if it's guilt, but there's something that's just negative about your perspective on this thing. And he's like, I, I think you need to hear something. So you know that verse in Philippians, well, he, he just said, you know that verse that's about sharing in Christ's sufferings? I said, yeah, that's in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, you know, it's Paul talking about wanting to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection. He's like, yeah, that verse right there. He's like, as you were talking about this, I just got this sense that you thought what God wanted you to accomplish through this thing was to help create change in this place for him. When in actuality, what I think God actually wanted to do was create change in you by allowing you to feel what it's like to be with a group of people who don't want to respond to God. And then what do you do? What do you do in that moment other than feel what it is that God feels? And he says, I, I sense in you that there's this sense of disappointment and like at the end, like this lack of culmination where you feel like it didn't actually get where it was supposed to go and there's something in you that still stresses over that a little bit. And he's like, I'm just telling you, I think you need to let it go because the job that was actually supposed to be accomplished was that you were supposed to feel the heart of God. You were supposed to share with God in his suffering for these people who wouldn't respond. And that's all God wanted you to do was to feel that. And he, you thought that he was doing a job through you when actually he was doing a job in you. And you know what? You sense this lack of fulfillment, but God did a really good job and he finished it. And it feels like you really feel the sorrow for God. And instead of feeling like that's a regret, you need to feel like that sorrow that you feel is actually victory because someone else is feeling God's heart with him. And God did a good job by helping you feel his heart with him. And you know, when he said that, I was like, wow, that was a light bulb for me. You know, like the light bulb. And I, you know, the funny thing is, is I knew that passage better than he did. He didn't even know where the passage was found. I've known that passage since middle school. I've studied and picked that passage apart. I knew the information. And the whole reason why that thing actually worked is because I understood that passage of scripture. And when he spoke into my mind, I was like, wow, I could have taught other people that. And, but it was one of those moments where it needed to be spoken to me by the right person in the right time into my situation. Bam. All of a sudden it was like God was communicating to me. You know? And I was like, that's awesome. I really needed to hear that. Thank you. Sent a guy an email the next day. I'm like, you have no idea. Like so many things in my, in my mind that were, were kind of messing with me a little bit. I didn't realize it freed me of some things that were kind of holding on back there, you know? And it was like, wow, that was really helpful, really important. And you know, when I look back and you can call those moments, whatever you want, light bulb moments, aha moments, or moments of revelation or enlightenment, or, you know, when, what do you, whatever you call them, you know, and, and we all have different words for those moments when you, you see something, you're like, whoa, and those moments when God really, really grabs us and changes us, you know, and in those moments, what I've realized when I look back is most of the time, those moments are actually moments where we understand information, they're actually just informational moments where there's a new piece of information that we understand where there's like revelation or we have all these different pieces of information and they get organized in such a way that we finally understand them in just the right way, in a way we've never understood them before. And so actually, you know what those moments are? Those moments are actually teaching of doctrine. <laughs> That's what they are. These are moments where I come face to face with truth and doctrine. 
And all of a sudden, I understood doctrine. But of course, in the moment, I would never know that what's happening is, is I'm understanding doctrine because it doesn't feel like distant or just objective or out there. You know, it doesn't feel like just scientific information. It feels present and close to me and warm and custom fit to my life. I would say not that I just learned a new piece of doctrine or I just learned more truth. What I would say in those moments is like, God got a hold of my heart. God moved in me, you know, or like I was convicted or whatever. God opened my eyes and I was using these relational terms as opposed to these terms that are a little more like objective. Like that was, uh, I understood doctrine more in this moment, you know, like that's, that's not, but that is actually what's happening is that my mind is being shaped. And the more I understood a situation, the more perspective I have on what's happening. So how can it be that this truth that I'm finding in this moment, I mean, information and truth seem so cold and out here, and yet I refer to them in the sense of like, by my mind getting shaped, all of a sudden it feels like it's relational. And this is why, is because our definition of truth usually means like scientific evidence, or it means data or math, or, you know, that's how we define truth. But how does the scripture define truth? According to scripture, what is truth? Pilate asked this question, didn't he? When he was about to send Jesus to be crucified, he said, what is truth? You know, how does the Bible define truth for us? It's spelled like this, J-E-S-U-S. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except by me. That's a bold claim, that he is truth. The truth at its very core, at its very definition, according to the scriptures, is not a set of ideas. It's not concepts. It's a person. Truth is a person. And therefore, when we encounter truth, what we're actually encountering is a person. What does that mean that truth is a person? Well, one thing it means is that you, can't only un- you, you, can't, you cannot fully understand truth by just studying textbooks or scientific data. Actually, truth has to be discovered holistically in all sorts of ways. You discover truth through staring at a piece of art, maybe. You discover truth through a relationship, through conversation. You experience truth when you serve with your hands. And you engage with your hands. You're beginning to experience truth in ways that we don't understand that we're experiencing truth. You know what else it means? It means that if Jesus is truth, when I get the information out and I get the books out and I read and I read the Bible and I read theories and I read doctrine and I have information that I can actually encounter God personally. Not just information about God, but I can know God personally by information. That if I have facts about truth, about what the Bible says and and this truth and that doctrine, that those aren't cold and abstract, that when we learn truth about God, we're actually encountering God personally in the middle of learning that truth because he says he's in the truth. It's not just information that speaks about God. It's that he's actually inside those words. He is the truth, which is why we're told in John 1.1 that the word can become flesh and dwell among us because he's actually inside the words. And so those moments when we're just enlightened and we're like, whoa, I really needed to hear that and I have a whole different perspective. You see, what's happening in that moment is I'm not just learning information. I'm encountering God, but I'm encountering him through the information being organized appropriately in my mind. And what happens in that moment is I'm actually seeing a new side of God. One of the, my favorite things about being a pastor, every job has its perks and has its lows, you know? And one of the greatest perks about being a, a pastor is watching moments when people, when it comes together for someone, 
whether you're involved in it or not, but when you hang around church a lot and you hang around the scriptures a lot and you hang around you know, God a lot, what happens, what often happens is there's moments where people encounter a piece of truth, a piece of evidence that kind of rocks their world, you know? And, but it doesn't rock their world in a bad way. It's in an incredible way where it builds a platform for them. And those are spectacular moments. I just had a moment um, the other day. I had a moment the other day where I was counseling this guy and he, he's not connected to our church. He's someone who I knew from a while ago. And he, he just went through a terrible situation. His wife was unfaithful to him. It completely blindsided him. He didn't know it was coming. And the church that he was at didn't have counseling to offer. And so they, they called and asked if they could meet with me. And I said, you know, I have an extremely full plate right now, but I'll, I'll have three sessions. We'll do three sessions and meet for three sessions, you know. And I was like, if it's someone in my church, I, I, I gotta, I, I'm like loving to throw time at them, but it's really hard outside of that to throw my time because I got to protect it for the church. And I said, but we'll do three sessions. And in the middle of that, we were work, working through this thing. And, and his question was, what do I do? Like, my wife was unfaithful to me, and I don't even know if she's interested in me anymore. But he's like, I don't know whether to try to continue that relationship and see it restored or whether to just, you know, cut my losses and move on. I don't really know what to do. Tell me what to do. And I was like, before we talk about that, we need to talk about some other stuff. Because you're trying to gain perspective on a practical situation in your life, but you actually need to be looking at it from a deeper perspective at this point. The fact that you're asking that question means that we need to ask some other questions. Okay, so this is what I did. I, I walked him through Ephesians chapter 5, and we actually got to the passage that Tim Walters asked us to, to read during the baby dedication. And as I was uh, walking through uh, doing counseling with him, I, I read this. I'm going to read it for you again. It's Ephesians 5, chapter 20, uh, chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And it says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Get this one, verse 27. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Is God selfish? Well, he did this whole thing so that he could present this girl to himself looking good. He said he did the whole thing so that this bride would look good to him when she's walking up the aisle. He wants to present her as good to himself. That's why Jesus dies on a cross, hangs on a cross, so he can wash her and make her pure, so he can present her to himself holy and blameless. Is this about her or is this about him? Like he wants to be able to look at her and think she looks good. Isn't that about God? Is God selfish then? No, he's not selfish. So I was talking to this guy about it. I'm like, so what is this? What is this saying? So you realize that when God died on the cross that he not only forgave us for things that we did wrong, but he has this unbelievable ability, uh, unbelievable ability to actually do, do the incredible. I mean, we were like the unfaithful bride. Hosea, the whole book of Hosea is showing us, the church, the people of God, as those who were unfaithful in a relationship with God. And what he says is that while we were unfaithful, he forgave us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what's more is not only did he have mercy on us, but not, by not punishing us the way we deserved, he had grace. And what that meant was he still provided for us. He was still paying our bills. He was still allowing us to breathe this air. He was still providing food for us, even though we were living in open rebellion and unfaithfulness to him. Not only did he have mercy and forgive us, he also had grace and sustained us. What's more is, is that he went way beyond just providing for us physically in the middle of our unfaithfulness. He recognized that we had damaged ourselves beyond repair, that we would never be able to feel okay about ourselves again. Why? 
Because we knew that we had totally screwed it up. Everything. We had messed the whole thing up. And we knew at the core of us, no matter what we said to anyone else, no matter what front we put on, we knew that we failed. And therefore, we were failures. And God should never look at us good again. He should never be okay with us again. So what does Jesus do? He dies on a cross and he pours his blood all over us and he washes us and he cleanses us with water through the word so that he can present us to himself as a beautiful, spotless, holy, radiant bride. Talk about grace. He didn't need a good-looking wife. He was all good. He was fine. He was Jesus. He had it all together. This wasn't for him. What he needed was for us to know that we were valued, and he couldn't lie about it. So he had to clean us and wash us up and present us to himself so that when we looked in his eyes, we knew that he actually desired us. And that wasn't for him. That was for us. And that's what we were talking about in this counseling session. And, and, and I said, and, and as I said it, th- this guy, and I said, you know, it says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. So that's how it says to love your wife. So, like, first let's talk about love. And this guy was losing it, you know. He was like, I, I realized that way before this event, I didn't love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. Way before this. I didn't understand love. And he's like, this is kind of like rocking my world. He's like, if I go this way or if I go this way, this means that life has to change in my perspective, that it's not about what's brought to me in this relationship. It's about what I can bring to this person in the relationship. That's, and I say, yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and when I look back, he, you know, this guy was, he, he was breaking down and he's like, wow, I, I also realized that like my, my joy can't be in this relationship. It has to be in God. I'm like, this is the only way you're actually going to be able to love. And what happened in that moment is he was like, I've never seen it that way before. And he started to cry. And I said, you, and he said, wow, that was really good perspective. Thanks for bringing that to me. And I said, no, you need to understand something. What you got wasn't just information and it wasn't perspective. What you just encountered was Jesus. In this moment, this information that you just received was not just random information about marriage that helps you live right. What happened was in this moment, you just saw a different side of Jesus. You just encountered him in these words. It's like you've only seen the side profile of Jesus. But as you read these words, what happened was is your perspective came around and you just encountered the face of Christ. This wasn't Tim bringing you good words. This was Jesus revealing himself to you. You just encountered Jesus tonight. And the guy just lost it in the moment. And he said, not only did he reveal himself to me and help change my perspective, but I've been so lonely in this moment. And this reminds me that Jesus is right here with me. I'm like, that is the power of the word of God. You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible to see what happens. And when, when we understand that Jesus is actually in the truth, he's in the information that we need to shape our minds appropriately, what we begin to understand is what the value of this Bible is. You understand what the value of this thing is in that scenario? It's that it doesn't change. That's the value of this because relationships, I, you know, when you're in relationships, you know they're in constant change, you know? Which side of the bed did you wake up on determines a whole lot today, you know? And how our relationship is going to work is determined by that. But what we realize here in this truth is that it doesn't change. It doesn't change. And this, we can count on it. And if we're looking for truth, 
then we take the value of the fact that this Bible doesn't change. We need something that doesn't change to build our lives on. And this doesn't change. It's written in black and white. It's there. It doesn't change. And that's awesome. We can build on this thing. But here, that's the value of the Bible. But let me tell you the mystery of the Bible. The mystery of the Bible is the fact that even though it doesn't change, that somehow it has this uncanny, incredible ability to move, to live, to breathe, and to translate itself into your life now the same way it translated itself into some Hebrew's life 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And the same passage of Scripture that you read now, someone else read 300 years ago in a different country, from a different race, from a different gender, from a different age and economic demographic. And you know what? That spoke something radically different to them in their situation because their situation was different and God was alive because we're told in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It's breathing. It's living. It's breathing. And it says it can penetrate even to dividing the the spirit and the soul. Did you know there was a difference between the spirit and the soul? But this Bible can actually nuance so specifically that whatever's going on in your life, 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 the exact same passage of scripture has something to say to each of those situations without ever negating the truth of the other situation. That's incredible. It's incredible that something that's so static, so solid, so foundational, so immovable can also be so transient you know, and can find its way into all of these different places. How does that work? This is how it works. Because this Bible is tied intrinsically to the heart of God. It's tied to who God is. Listen, the reason it's unchanging is because God is, because God is the same yesterday, and he's the same today, and he's the same forever. God never changes. The reason this Bible never changes and the truth of it never changes is because God's nature and his character and his heart, they don't change. God's nature is always the same. So this Bible is always the same. But since truth is not just a set of ideas, but it's also a person, what it means is, is that God himself, while his nature doesn't change, he relates to each of us in different situations, in different ways. He's like a dad who really cares about all his kids, and while his character and his nature doesn't change, the way he relates to each one of his kids in each situation might be different. And just when we think we know exactly how God would respond in a situation, we're blown away because we realize that the circumstances of this situation may be just a tiny little bit different than this other situation, and so God does something different, and he completely surprises us. And even though he doesn't change and the truth doesn't change, he finds a way to custom fit his nature and his character into our lives. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's an absolutely amazing thing about the word of God. So the value of it is that it doesn't change, but the mystery of it is that it can be completely uh, spoken into any given life and still be perfectly uh, nuanced for our life. Now listen, this is revealed, in one of the ways this is revealed is through the two words in the original language, for Word. The word, word, uh, that there's two words that in the original that mean word. One is the word logos or logos, and uh, L-O-G-O-S. The other is called rhema. And the first one, logos, this is complete oversimplification, please. You know, for, for any of you scholars in the room who want to, you know, come and talk to me afterwards, is Josh in here? No, Josh is praying for us. All right, good. So um, when, when what logos basically means is the written word of God, the word that's written. And what rhema basically means is spoken. 
Okay, so whatever this is right here, lagos, rhema. If the prophet speaks it out or the Holy Spirit speaks it into my life, that's rhema. We, in, in, uh, in the old church of the brethren, they, they had this, this, uh, these terms that they would use called the inner word and the outer word. And the outer word was the word of God, but the inner word was the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. And when the inner word and the outer word were in connection, you knew something good is going down right now, you know? And it's really good when they come into connection. And that's the idea of these two words, the rhema word and the uh, lagos word. Now listen, in this situation where this guy spoke into my life, and, and it kind of helped free me of some thoughts of the past or whatever. What happened when that guy spoke to me and said, Tim, you need to let this go. You know, God actually accomplished this. Was that rhema word or was that lagos? Everybody's right. Anybody who answered, those of you who didn't answer, you're all wrong. But any of you who did answer, if you answered either Rhema or Lagos, you're right. And most of you didn't answer, so most of you are wrong. However, I saw a couple of you answer, and you're all right. Because what happened was, is it's Rhema because it was specifically spoken into my life, but it was Lagos because he used Philippians 3 to tell me. And you see, what happens is, is when it comes to our ability to know God speaking into our life specifically, it is completely dependent, and there's a direct ratio by how well we can hear the voice of God based on how well we know this word right here. And if we know the Lagos well, then God can speak rhema into my life. And, and this is the gauge. You see, what happens is, it's funny, like, th- this is... This Bible right here is like God's language. This is his vocabulary. This is his alphabet. And, and the more we know of this, the more he can communicate into my life, the rhema, the living word, because we have the alphabet in our head. We understand the whole language. And if we understand the language, then God can spiritually speak that into my heart. Does that make sense? Or it's like this is like the keys on the keyboard or something, and God wants to play us music. And the more keys you have on the keyboard, the more beautiful music he can play. But if I only know three of the notes, then he can play me Mary Had a Little Lamb, and i got to figure out what to do with my life based on Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know, as opposed to like, you know, some incredible, you know, instead of Beethoven speaking, instead of Mozart or Beethoven speaking into my life, i got Mary Had a Little Lamb. Well, that's because I only knew three notes of the Bible. You know, but the more I know of the Bible, the more that God can communicate into my life. This is how it works. And I, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, the reason that this guy, when he spoke into my life, the reason that it spoke to me was because of how well I knew Philippians 3. You know, and the more I knew that, the more God could communicate to me through that moment. That's how it works, you know. And so the more you know of this thing, the more God can speak into you. And what's, what's more is, is that when God goes to communicate this way, if, if God speaks into my life, circumstantially, you know? I'm looking for a direction in my life and God's kind of trying to guide me into something. Have you ever heard someone say, I think God told me this? And you kind of look at them and you're like, I don't know if that was God, you know? I don't know. Like instantly when someone's like, God told me such and such, you're like already, it's like, uh, it's a pretty big claim, you know? And uh, sometimes when God speaks into our own life, we can get kind of feelings or emotions or circumstances or whatever that kind of maybe that's God communicating to me but you're not you don't have massive confidence around it that's a really good thing to not have confidence in you know why because we're told in the scriptures in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful it's desperately sick and who can understand it you can't just follow your heart you can't just trust your conscience you follow your heart and trust your conscience you know where it's going to lead to Hell. That's where it leads to. It's desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all else. 
Satan loves to get us to just trust our hearts, to just trust our conscience. You think our conscience and our heart knows what's right? Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. They have no idea what's right. And even when we're walking with Christ, we're still deceived. I mean, that's why we put all this armor all around us and everything. And the armor of God is to try to protect that thing. But all the way out in front of all of it is what? The word of God. The first line of defense is the word of God. The first filter is the Bible. Man, I have people over and over again tell me that they think God's cool with something they're doing that's anti-biblical, you know? And I'm like, you don't know? You can't say that way. How are you going to speak the mouthpiece of God saying God's okay with this when he already said in the Bible that he's not? Is he a God of contradiction? No, he's not a God of contradiction. He already says it right here. Don't tell me what God says. He already told me in black and white. You know, if he's going to nuance something into my life, that's awesome. And he speaks rhema word into me to help it become more specific in my life, but it won't contradict anything he's already said. So my ability to hear and receive the voice of God is directly linked to my ability to understand and know this thing. I was, uh, morality is totally and constantly in flux in our world. You recognize that, right? That whatever the group think is in our world about morality, it's not just that we consistently do bad things, it's that our minds get messed up and what we think is good and bad changes all the time. You do realize that, right? I, Jen and I, we just traded in our 13-year-old uh, Nissan Pathfinder for a 7-year-old Nissan Pathfinder because the rear fender had, was finally going to rust through and we weren't even going to be able to get it inspected anymore. And we're spending more time in the shop than in our driveway or on the road. So it was time to make a, a trade. Well, we trade and we get this other Pathfinder. And then, as it turns out, uh, you know, we got about halfway home and went to put a CD in the, in the disc changer there and it, it wouldn't go in. It just wouldn't even fit. I'm like, we got a problem, you know? So we had to go and take it back and they're going to replace it. And so we're sitting in the, I'm like, way to go, Tim. Good choice. Uh, anyway, we, we're sitting here in the, in the lobby, or not, no, it was like a waiting room, you know? And we're in the waiting room and we're waiting for them to, to replace this stereo. And you're like, a, you're captive when you're in this waiting room. The TV's on. And no matter what's on, it's like, it's on, you know? And there's all these people here and you've got to watch it. And I, you know, I don't have the clicker in my hand. And there was this show on that I had never knew about or heard about. Uh, it was a talk show, I think, by the name of Anderson Cooper. Does that sound right? Is that Okay, so Anderson Cooper. And I didn't know about Anderson Cooper. Well, anyway, he had this topic on that was uh, really, wow. It was on these things called purity balls or uh, purity banquets or balls. And what it was was it was something that was birthed out of some evangelical Christian movement where um, a, father, a father wanted to... Um, pledged to his daughter that he would pray for her every day for her to remain pure and that uh, she would commit to, to chastity until she was married. And there was a couple other fathers who were interested in doing that. And so they were going to have this banquet that was almost like structured like a wedding for their, for their girls where they had this, all this kind of pomp around it and they made these commitments to each other. Well, that was the idea. And they had this family come on who had gone through this and the guy who had kind of started the movement. And then, of course, they had all the other people come in with, uh, you know, they're, they're, for a talk show, it's got to be really controversial. So there, were people, there was this woman who wrote a book about about the myth of purity, and she was there. And then there was these people who, this woman who had gone through kind of one of these things, and um, then she, you know, fell and, and didn't uphold her side of the vow, and she was kind of shamed by those around her, and so she felt bad about who she was, and it, it was this long journey back to God. And so they had the, the debate going back and forth. 
okay? And this is how they framed the debate at the end, is they said this. It was obvious that um, this guy, Cooper or Anderson or whatever his name is, he was like, man, I, they're saying that if the girl doesn't live in chastity, that she's fallen. He's like, I haven't heard terminology like that since before I was born, man. Like, that's like terminology that you hear in the movies back in the day, but the idea that someone fell because they chose to engage in some sort of, uh, you know, intimate relationship outside of marriage or something, he's like, that's just a bizarre thought to me. There's still people who think like that, you know? And, and then what the, the woman who was writing the book, she said this, she said, yeah, the problem with celebrating purity, and this is, this is the point, the problem with celebrating purity is that when you celebrate what you call purity, when you celebrate chastity, you shame those who don't choose the same lifestyle as you. And they feel like second-class citizens because you're celebrating this thing, and, and therefore they feel like second-class citizens. And what I realized in the moment, and, and I, there was like three times where I was so frustrated with just the whole debate because it was just so like, there, there was no truth in the whole thing from any of the sides. Everyone who was talking, they, they weren't speaking the word of God because our foundation isn't the word of God. You know, I was just getting frustrated. I wanted to change the channel. Three times I went to change the channel and, and I was going to stand up to walk over there and climb up on a chair and change the channel, you know? But each time I went to do it, I, I just sensed that I needed to stop and I prayed and I asked God, should I change the channel? And, and this is what I sensed God saying to me is don't look at the TV, look around the room and watch people. And I watched, and I watched this one guy, man, every time the word purity was mentioned, and every time some sort of thing around how to use his, sexu his sexuality was mentioned, this guy would stand up, and he'd walk out of the room, and he'd pace outside the door, and then he'd come back in and sit down. There was other people who were glued to the TV, who were locked on. There was another person who, they were reading the paper, reading a magazine, and they're sitting here, and yet every time something, there would be a certain phrase, and you just watch them put their head down. And then they go up and read again. And you're just watching how much this conversation was affecting people. You know why? Because there's no lines for morality. There's no lines. And people are desperately trying to figure it out. And, and they're saying, well, yeah, you probably shouldn't judge people and you shouldn't shame people. And we've all felt the weight of people who are condescending over other people and saying they're the holy ones and therefore you're the shameful ones. And we know that's ridiculous and absurd and it's not what Jesus does. He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Before you remove, the plank, before you remove a speck from someone else's eye, remove the plank from your own. Judge not lest ye be judged. You can say all these things about, but then on the other hand, you recognize that he, there are actual real standards that we're supposed to live by. And it's a beautiful thing if someone chooses to live within those standards. And that in 1 Corinthians 5, it actually tells us that if we don't judge those who are within the church, then we're not doing our job. And there's like, what happens is within us, we feel a lack of the lines in our society because they're constantly in flux. And yet what we often don't have as a society or even as people is knowledge of what really is true of where the lines really are, of how God gives us truth and that truth can set us free. When people tell me that they've heard from God or God's cool with something that's going on in their life that's not appropriate, it's always a sad moment if it's in contradiction with the word of God because I recognize we can't. Most of us, many of us, don't. not only do we not read the Bible enough, we don't understand the Bible and we try to protect our own way of life and we try to protect our own thoughts about things and we often use this Bible to, to back up things that we think already and things that we want to do. 
And we take passages of scripture and we pick this one and we pick that one and we pick this one and then we fit it into our political system or our family system or whatever in order to support our own way of life and our own thought process. Instead of taking all of our thoughts and laying them out in front of God and saying, I don't know a thing. Teach me what this says because you know. You understand. You're the guide. See, that's the idea. Jesus says in Isaiah 55, we're told that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. And then he goes on to say that his word, when it comes and, and, and it comes to earth, it never fails to accomplish what it is that it was sent out to accomplish. Basically, what he's trying to tell us is, is that there's only one thing that you can actually count on to be true. There's only one thing at the end of the day, your conscience gets messed up by the world around you, by the political party that you're connected to. It gets messed up by the family that you're raised in. It gets messed up by the people you hang out with. You can't trust your conscience. You can't trust your heart. What you can trust, there's only one thing you can really trust to tell you what the truth is. And it's right here. It's called Lagos. It's the word of God. And, and when, we, when we lose sight of this, we lose sight of a ton. And so what happens is, is that we are in a battle, you know? We, there's warfare going on. You realize that. And that's why in the, when, we're, when we put on the armor of God that Ephesians 6 talks about, it talks about a helmet of salvation that protects our mind, a breastplate of righteousness that protects our heart, a sword of the spirit that, that is the truth, you know, the word of God that's powerful and effective. And, and what's happening is, is there's a battle. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we are in full-on warfare. The battlefield of the mind which is why Paul tells us to bring every thought into captivity. Every thought into captivity. And there's a war over our minds right now. And we are being brainwashed constantly by the world around us, you know, whether we like it or not. There's, so I've, you've heard me talk about this book that I've read, uh, Tortured for Christ, which is a, it's about, uh, you know, people who are, were martyrs. And the, the, one, the guy who wrote it, basically, he was um, from Romania, in communist Romania, and he was in prison for 14 years, and they just tortured him for 14 years straight, trying to get him to recant his faith. And he said one of the things they would do in the prison was they would just play over the PA, over the speaker system all the time. God is dead. God is dead. God is dead. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. We're your God. Communism is your only God. Your country is your only God. And they would just play it over and over again. And he's like, obviously what they're trying to do, I mean, we all knew what they were doing was they were brainwashing us. The problem is, is we were captive and there's nothing you can do about it. And when those words just keep going in your head, even if you don't believe them, it does something to you. You know, it, it does something to you. And they're being brainwashed. And he's like, you know what we desperately wanted more than anything else was the Bible, to read it, to wash ourselves with the truth. But he's like, we couldn't get a hold of the Bible. You know what the difference is between that guy in a prison in communist Romania and us here? There's two differences. One is the fact that he didn't have the Bible, and we do. The other is that he knew he was being brainwashed, and we don't. That's the difference. We don't understand that the messages we receive all the time are every bit as brainwashing. Every time Hollywood teaches us about what love is, we cannot help but be affected by Hollywood's perspective of love. We cannot help but be, but be affected by what the news tells us is acceptable and unacceptable. We can't help but be affected by what the Republicans and the Democrats define as morality for us. We can't help but be affected. The only way that we can be cleansed from it is when as much as we hear from the world, we hear way more from the Word. And that's why in that Ephesians 5 passage, it says that Christ washed us with the water through the Word. Because Jesus wants to brainwash us with the truth with the truth. 
Because if we know the truth, the truth sets us free. And so these are, this early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't have the Bible, the New Testament, the way we do, so they met together each day and each night in each other's homes, learning more, learning more, needing to be washed with the water of the word, needing to know what truth is. They desperately needed it. I want to ask you today about how devoted you are to the word of God. They met together every night in each other's homes, devoted themselves. This is who they were. They were people of the book. This was their, this was their reality, was this book. I need to confess something about our church, okay? Is that we as a people, I think we love God. I think as a church, we love God. You know, I really do. I think that we're growing in prayer. I think that there's, there's a kindness about this church where we welcome each other. If I will be accountable with you as your pastor and share what I think an area we really need to work on, it's knowledge of this word right here. I, you know, we have some saints of old in our church who have dedicated themselves to knowing this word inside and out. But if I were to ask you, how many of you have read this book from cover to cover and ask for a show of hands right now? I bet you it would be sad. Because this is the truth. This is the foundation. All the other stuff is lies and we can't trust anything. We can't trust God even in his communication into my life mystically or spiritually unless I know this thing because I don't know how to understand those feelings and those emotions unless I understand what he's already revealed. And that's why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Day in and day out, they met during the day in the temple courts and at night in each other's homes, trying to learn the word of God. Listen, I'm not saying we should come to church and hear me teach every, uh, every day. Please, don't do that, you know? I need time to prepare, you know, and other stuff and to breathe. What I am saying is that they didn't have the printing press. And so they didn't have what we have. They don't have this thing sitting next to their bed, on their bedstand next to their bed. They, didn't, they weren't able to pull out their phone and pull up a Bible app on their phone and read it. They weren't, you know, they're not able to stick a CD in their CD player in the car and listen to the teaching of the Word of God. Do you realize we have more access to the Word of God than anyone in history ever? We have more access to it. And do you realize that in the history of the church, we may possibly be one of the most Ill, biblically illiterate generations ever with more access to the word of God and less knowledge. And it's not just because we're not disciplined, although that's a huge part of it. But the other part is because we are not devoted to the word of God. We are not devoted to it. We don't believe in it as much as we think we do. Being devoted to something isn't something you decide to do, remember? It's something you catch. It's a response. Being devoted, you can't just decide to be devoted. You can decide to be committed or decide to be disciplined. And believe me, we need to decide to be disciplined about our reading of this word and knowing this word. But what we really need is to be devoted to it. And when we talk about devotion to the word of God, you know how we talk about it? Hunger. Hunger for the word of God. Jesus, after he hadn't eaten for 40 days, for 40 days he hadn't eaten, and then Satan comes and he has this pile of stones and he said, turn them into bread and eat them. And what does Jesus do? He quotes the Bible. God himself quotes the Bible and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How disciplined are you in making sure that you eat? Do you have to work really hard at discipline in order to eat? No, you get hungry, and the hunger drives you to eating. You have to be disciplined to not eat too much. Do you have a hunger for the Word of God? We have to discipline ourselves for the Word of God, but do we have a hunger? Like, this is what I want. This is what I need. Food might help my body, but this gives me life. Knowing a little bit about how to do my work, I need information in a workshop or I need to go to college or school to learn how to do it. This teaches me how to live life. This is where I encounter Jesus. He's up inside this Bible waiting for me to find him. Right here already waiting for me. Am I devoted to it? Am I hungry for it? I'm telling you right here, right now, we need to make some commitments, okay? Here's the commitments we need to make. First of all, don't miss a Sunday. Don't miss a Sunday. Because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And while they still have, while we have this in the way that they don't have it, we still actually need the authority that knows the word of God to speak it into our lives. Okay, so you actually need to receive teaching in Sunday school, teaching at journey groups, teaching from the, the, the preaching on a Sunday morning. You still need that. And, and to show up every now and then and say, it's church, that's cool, and that's good and everything, but don't miss. Man, that's like missing food. That's like missing your meal. Don't miss. Be here every Sunday. Just don't even think about it. Put it in your calendar and it's there. Don't miss. It's not because I need the seats filled. Believe me, I don't care. God loves me. I don't really care what's going on when it comes to my own, you know, sense of job satisfaction. I love you and I want what's best for you. And if you want what's best for you, then you will be here and listen to the teaching every Sunday and you won't miss. You won't miss. And if you're going somewhere where you got to be out of town, you'll go to church somewhere else and you'll receive the word. When you're in your car, if it's possible, listen to the word of God. At home, they met, to eat, they met together every day. You don't have to meet together every day, but you do have to read this every day, okay? Every day. Don't miss it. Just like eating, don't miss it. And then we pray, God, give us a hunger for the word of God because it's really hard to just be disciplined enough, especially when it seems like it's dry to me at times and it's not really speaking to me. I'm not feeling that rhema word. Well, I'm not feeling the rhema word because I don't know the lagos yet, you know? And sometimes it takes hard work and discipline to learn this thing and I need God to give me a hunger for it. Sometimes you gain the hunger by discipline, you know? Like, if you're used to eating junk food, you're not going to be hungry for broccoli. But if you discipline yourself to eat broccoli, then after a while, you'll get hungry for it. Read the Word. Don't stop reading it. I don't care if you want to or not. Read it. Just keep reading it. And after a while, you'll realize it's life for you, and you'll want it more than anything else, and you'll read it. If you have a hard time knowing how to read it, we have some booklets on the Welcome Center that are personal practices in pursuit of God. And it talks about how to read your Bible. It talks about those types of things. We took the collective wisdom of our elders and did the best we could to give principles in regard to reading the Word of God. And I would encourage you and I would ask you to please take that booklet. Take the booklet. Take it home. If you, if you, don't, if you don't know how to read that thing yet, use that. And it's a guide to help you out. If they're gone by the time you get back there, email me, you know, or talk to one of us on staff and we'll get it to you. Listen, we need to pray that God will get us in this word the way that early church was. Because when I look up on the hill and I look back to the beginning and I realize they devoted themselves to the word, I can say, yeah, I believe this is the foundation. But can we say that we are devoted to knowing this book and therefore knowing our God? It's a challenge for you. If you haven't read this thing cover to cover, don't read another book. Whatever you're reading, put it down. 
Start reading this and don't stop until you've got through it cover to cover and start over again. Once you've read this a whole bunch of times, then you're ready to start reading other books and knowing what's true and what's not about it. Okay? Let's pray.